Section 10. Rain, Sullivan, and the Dining Room of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 26 through 28. Chapter 26. Rain. Yes, but the sun does not shine every day. Sometimes a cold rain beats down on you, and a northeast wind chills you to the bone. Your shoes and your coat are wet still from the day before, and you have three hours to go before breakfast. You tramp along in the cheerless light of that bitter dawn, with thirty miles before you, and nothing to look forward to at the end but the squalid discomfort of a Chinese inn. There you will find bare walls, a clammy floor of trodden earth, and you will draw yourself as best you can over a dish of burning charcoal. Then you think of your pleasant room in London. The rain driving in squalls against the windows only makes its warmth more grateful. You sit by the fire, your pipe in your mouth, and read the times from cover to cover, not the leading articles, of course, but the agony column and the advertisements of country houses you will never be able to afford. On the Chiltern Hills, standing in its own park of one hundred and fifty acres, with spacious garden, orchard, etc., a Georgian house in perfect condition, with original woodwork and chimney-pieces, six reception rooms, fourteen bedrooms, and usual offices, modern sanitation, stabling with rooms over and excellent garage, three miles from first-rate golf course. I know then that messengers Knight, Frank, and Rutley are my favorite authors. The matters that they treat of, like the great commonplaces which are the material of all fine poetry, never stale, and their manner like that of the best masters is characteristic, but at the same time various. Their style, as is that of Confucius, according to the Sinologues, is glitteringly compact, succinct but suggestive. It combines an admirable exactness with a breadth of image which gives the imagination an agreeable freedom. Their mastery of words, such as rude and perch, of which I suppose I once knew the meaning, but which for many years have been a mystery to me, is amazing, and they will use them with ease and assurance. They can play with technical terms with the ingenuity of Mr. Rudyard Kipling, and they can invest them with the Celtic glamour of Mr. W. B. Yeats. They have combined their individualities so completely that I defy the most discerning critic to discover traces of a divided authorship. Literary history is acquainted with the collaboration of two writers and the names of Beaumont and Fletcher. Erkman, Chaitrian, Besant, and Rice spring to the excited fancy, but now that the higher criticism has destroyed that belief in the triple authorship of the Bible, which I was taught in my youth, I conjecture that the case of Knight, Frank, and Rutley is unique. Then Elizabeth, very smart in the white squirrel I brought her from China, comes in to say good-bye to me, for she, poor child, must go out, whatever, 
the weather, and I play trains with her while her pram is being got ready. Then, of course, I should do a little work, but the weather is so bad that I feel lazy, and I take up instead Professor Giles' book on Chuang Tzu. The rigid Confucianists frown upon him because he is an individualist, and it is to the individualism of the age that they ascribe the lamentable decay of China. But he is very good reading. He has the advantage on a rainy day that he can be read without great application, and not seldom you come across a thought that sets your own wandering. But presently, ideas, insinuating themselves into your consciousness like the lapping waves of a rising tide, absorb you to the exclusion of those which old Chuang Tzu suggested. And notwithstanding your desire to idle, you sit down at your table. Only the dilettante uses a desk. Your pen goes easily, and you write without effort. It is very good to be alive. Then two amusing people come to luncheon, and when they are gone, you drop into Christie's. You see some Ming figures there, but they are not so good as those you brought from China yourself, and then you watch being sold pictures you are only too glad not to possess. You look at your watch. There is pretty sure to be a rubber going at the garrick, and the shocking weather justifies you in wasting the rest of the afternoon. You cannot stay very late, for you have seats for a first night, and you must get home and dress for an early dinner. You will be just in time to tell Elizabeth a little story before she goes to sleep. She looks really very nice in her pajamas, with her hair done up in two plates. There is something about a first night which only the satiety of the critic can fail to be moved by. It is pleasant to see your friends, and amusing to hear the pit's applause when a favorite of the stage, acting, better than she ever does behind the footlights, a delightful embarrassment at being recognized, advances to take her seat. It may be a bad play that you are going to see, but it has at least the merit that no one has seen it before and there is always the chance of a moment's emotion, or of a smile. Towards you, and their great straw hats, like the hat of a lovesick pierrot, but with a huge brim, come a string of coolies, lolloping along, bent forward a little under the weight of the great bales of cotton that they carry. The rain plasters their blue clothes, so thin and ragged, against their bodies. The broken stones of the causeway, are slippery, and with toil you pick your muddy way. Chapter 27 Sullivan He was an Irish sailor. He deserted his ship at Hong Kong, and took it into his head to walk across China. He spent three years wandering about the country, and soon acquired a very good knowledge of Chinese. He learned it, as is common among men of his class, with greater ease than do the more highly educated. He lived on his wits. He made a point of avoiding the British consul, but went to the magistrate of each town he came to, and represented himself as having been robbed on the way of all his money. His story was not improbable, and it was told with a wealth of convincing detail which would have excited the admiration of so great a master as Captain Costigan. The magistrate, after the Chinese fashion, was anxious to get rid of him, and was glad to do so at the cost of ten or fifteen dollars. If he could get no money, 
he could generally count on a place to sleep in and a good meal. He had a certain rough humor which appealed to the Chinese, so he continued very successfully till he hit by misfortune on a magistrate of a different stamp. This man, when he told his story, said to him, You are nothing but a beggar and a vagabond. You must be beaten. He gave an order, and the fellow was promptly taken out, thrown on the ground, and soundly thrashed. He was not only very much hurt, but exceedingly surprised, and what is more strangely mortified, it ruined his nerve. There and then he gave up his vagrant life, and making his way to one of the outposts, applied to the commissioner of customs for a place as tide-waiter. It is not easy to find white men to take such posts, and few questions are asked of those who seek them. He was given a job, and you may see him now, a sunburned, clean-shaven man of forty-five, florid and rather stout, in a neat blue uniform, boarding the steamers and the junks at a little riverside town, where the deputy commissioner, the postmaster, a missionary, and he are the only Europeans. His knowledge of the Chinese and their ways makes him an invaluable servant. He has a little yellow wife and four children. He has no shame about his past, and over a good stiff whiskey he will tell you the whole story of his adventurous travels. But the beating is what he can never get over. It surprises him yet, and he cannot, he simply cannot understand it. He has no ill feeling towards the magistrate who ordered it. On the contrary, it appeals to his sense of humor. He was a great old sportsman, the old blackguard, he says. Nerve, eh? Chapter 28 The Dining Room It was an immense room in an immense house. When it was built, building was cheap, and the merchant princes of that day built magnificently. Money was made easily then, and life was luxurious. It was not hard to make a fortune, and a man, almost before he had reached middle age, could return to England and live the rest of his days no less splendidly in a fine house in Surrey. It is true that the population was hostile, and it was always possible that a riot might make it necessary for him to fly for his life, but this only added a spice to the comfort of his existence, and when danger threatened it was fairly certain that a gunboat would arrive in time to offer protection or refuge. The foreign community largely allied by marriage, was sociable, and its members entertained one another lavishly. They gave pompous dinner-parties, they danced together, and they played whist. Work was not so pressing that it was impossible to spend now and again a few days in the interior shooting duck. It was certainly very hot in summer, and after a few years a man was apt to take things easily, but the rest of the year was only warm with blue skies and a balmy air, and life was very pleasant. There was a certain liberty of behavior, and no one was thought the worse of, so long as the matter was not intruded on the notice of the ladies, if he had to live with him a little bright-eyed Chinese girl. When he married, he sent her away with a present, and if there were children, they were provided for at a Eurasian school in Shanghai. But this agreeable life was a thing of the past. The port 
lived on its export of tea, and the change of taste from Chinese to Ceylon had ruined it. For thirty years the port had lain ardying. Before that the council had had two vice-councils to help him in his work, but now he was able to do it easily by himself. He generally managed to get a game of golf in the afternoon, and he was seldom too busy for a rubber of bridge. Nothing remained of the old splendor but the enormous hongs, and they were mostly empty. The tea merchants, such as were left of them, turned their hands to all manner of sidelines in the effort to make both ends meet. But the effort was listless. Everyone in the port seemed old. It was no place for a young man. And in the room in which I sat, I seemed to read the history of the past and the history of the man I was awaiting. It was Sunday morning, and when I arrived after two days on a coasting steamer, he was in church. I tried to construct a portrait of him from the room. There was something pathetic about it. It had the magnificence of a past generation, but a magnificence run to seed, and its tidiness, I know not why, seemed to emphasize a shame-faced poverty. On the floor was a huge turkey carpet, which in the seventies must have cost a great deal of money, but now it was quite threadbare. The immense mahogany table, at which so many good dinners had been eaten, with such a luxury of wine, was so highly polished that you could see your face in it. It suggested port, old and tawny, and prosperous red-faced gentlemen with side-whiskers discussing the antics of the mountebank Disraeli. The walls were of that sombre red which was thought suitable for a dining-room when dinner was a respectable function, and they were heavy with pictures. Here were the father and mother of my host, an elderly gentleman with grey whiskers and a bald head, and a stern, dark old lady, with her hair dressed in the fashion of the Empress Eugenie, and there his grandfather in a stock, and his grandmother in a mob cap the mahogany sideboard with a mirror at the back was laden with plated salvers and a tea-service and much else while in the middle of the dining-table stood an immense aubergine on the black marble chimney-piece was a black marble clock flanked by black marble vases and in the four corners of the room were cabinets filled with all manner of plated articles here and there great palms and pots spread their stiff foliage the chairs were of massive mahogany, stuffed and covered with faded red leather, and on each side of the fireplace was an armchair. The room, large though it was, seemed crowded, but because everything was rather shabby, it gave you an impression of melancholy. All those things seemed to have a sad life of their own, but a life subdued, as though the force of circumstances had proved too much for them. They had no longer the strength to struggle against fate, but they clung together with a tremulous eagerness, as though they had a vague feeling that only so could they retain their significance, and I felt that it was only a little time before the end came when they would lie haphazard in an unlovely confusion, with little numbers pasted on them in the dreary coldness of an auction room. End of Section 10